Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we are joined by former Florida State All-American and top 500 singles and doubles player J.Y. Oban to discuss his prolific college career, rekindling his passion for tennis, getting into coaching, and so much more. It is a fantastic conversation that I know all of you listeners are going to enjoy. Enjoy. Before we get to it, though, have to give a shout out to our dear friends at Swing Vision. They are on the forefront of all innovations happening in the artificial intelligence space in regards to our beloved sport of tennis. And yes, that sentence sounds complicated, but really, it's quite simple. You're going to download the Swing Vision app, open that app up, use it to record your hitting sessions, and the Swing Vision app will do the rest from there. They'll break down the forehands, the back hands, the serves, the makes, the misses, the things you need to work on to improve your game moving forward. And the best part is you'll have all of that information available in the palm of your hands. To learn more, just click on the link in the description to this podcast. When you inevitably do sign up for that Swing Vision app, make sure you use our promo code CRACK20. Not only will it let them know we sent you there, you'll get $20 off plus a free 14-day pro trial. Again, shout out to our friends at Swing vision for their support of this podcast learn more by clicking on that link in the description to this show with that said let's get to it my conversation with jy obon hey crack fans before we get to today's show i want to let all of you listeners know about the revolutionary work being done by our friends over at swing vision now all of us as tennis players are constantly searching for that piece of information that's going to give us that one two three percent edge whenever we step onto the court we want to know am i hitting my forehand with enough depth am i accurately placing my backhands am i employing patterns on the court that are putting me in an optimum position to experience success Thankfully, all of those questions can now be answered via the app produced by our friends at Swing Vision. Folks, it's extraordinarily simple. You're going to download the app. You're going to turn that app on your phone. You're going to put your phone on the back fence, the back curtain of whatever court you're playing on. You're going to hit record. And then using artificial intelligence, Swing Vision is going to break down your performance. If you click on the link that you find in the podcast description here on today's episode, you'll go right to the Swing Vision website. And of course, friends who use our Crack Rackets promo code CRACK20 are going to get an additional $20 discount and a free 14-day pro trial on the Swing Vision app. Again, you use that promo code CRACK20, $20 discount, as well as a free 14-day pro trial. How do you find the link? To get signed up, just go back to your podcast feed. It's in the podcast description of this episode. You go to the Swing Vision website, you set up your account, you download the app, you get rocking and rolling, get all the information one location with our friends at Swing Vision. Joining us on the podcast for the first time today is a guest you will know best as a two-time All-American during his time at Florida State, former pro tennis player, pro tennis coach, just a tennis do-everything. And thus, we are thrilled to be joined by J.Y. Obon today on the show. My friend, how are you doing? 
I'm great. I'm great. I was excited when you guys asked because I'm a big fan of you guys. I love what you're doing. Obviously, follow you guys everywhere and love the attention you're bringing to College Tennis. Oh, I appreciate you saying that. For what it's worth, I wouldn't do what I do if it wasn't for late 2000s college tennis. And I think I told this story on a different podcast I did, non-crack rackets related recently. But I, and I'm curious if you had this experience as well. Late 2000s, right? Us tennis fans were searching for any tennis we could find on the internet because it wasn't as available as it is now. Yeah. And the one thing I could always find was Virginia men's tennis highlights on YouTube. That was like the <laughs> one thing for me. And like you were there for the Dev years and Shabazz coming to yeah. town. And I actually could plant like could say directly that seed and draw a line from there to where I am today. Uh, does that correlate with you at all? I feel like it was really hard to find tennis early on. Oh, there was nowhere to find tennis. It was it was impossible. I still remember like with the first time livestream.com or whatever it was. Yeah. I, and that came up. I'm like, oh my God, they're actually showing some challenger matches. This is crazy. So yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's come a long way. No doubt about that. And obviously I want to dive into all things about your tennis career, what you're doing now. You are also one of my favorite tennis Twitter personalities and that you are someone who will say what you see, what you like, what you don't like, which is always refreshing. Um, As you look big picture at college tennis, and I know this is kind of fast forwarding things here. Do you think it's more popular than it was, say, decade, decade and a half ago? Do you think the level has been subsequently raised as well? I think significantly because you're bringing in, there's way more players now, especially internationally that are coming to play in. I remember when a couple of years ago, if you remember the name Alex Bogdanovich, the British player, uh, he, he came to Florida State to train. So, and I just kind of took him around. I showed him our facilities and he skipped college, went straight to pro. And he said it, he said, oh my gosh, had I known this is what, you know, some of these universities can offer, I would have come play college tennis and then maybe go pro after. So I think a lot more players are aware of what, what we got in college tennis, how good the level actually is the support system around it uh, and it's a great stepping stone for a lot of players that maybe are on the edge or maybe don't have the finances and it's a great way to start so and and because of the levels gotten better and a lot more players are going to play pro through college then people are like well let's go watch let's see what's going on over there yeah i'm sure you didn't realize when you were playing clancy shields in the 2005 kalamazoo you're like this is the future arizona head coach um i'm sure that wasn't the in the mind at the time no, it was not, and neither was it when I lost to him two weeks earlier in the backdrop play course as well. I think. Uh, I think I lost. Was it backdrop? He beat me for sure in a practice match because we were practicing a couple of days. I feel like I lost. He did beat me. Yeah, he did beat me. I remember I lost to Michael Venus uh, in a main draw, like third or fourth round. And not a I bad loss in retrospect. Not considering, but and I was so ticked off because I'd beaten him at clay courts, like I think the year or two before. Okay. So I thought, hey, I got a pretty good draw here. And who would have known this guy ends up being like top 10 in the world doubles? And, you know, not, he could have been a good singles player if he wanted to do it too. So, yeah. No doubt about that. And I am curious because, and you talk about this on the website, obontennis.com, where everyone can go learn more about you and see all the things that you are up to. You know, you were a high-level junior. You played U.S. Junior Davis Cup, which I do want to ask about because I think that's a fascinating event that outside of, Colette Lewis doesn't get talked about too frequently. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, but, you know, for you making that college tennis 
making that choice. You know, I, I want to ask why Florida State ultimately, but what was the conversation around college tennis at the time you were choosing to go to that path? Did it feel like it was as prevalent of a way to the pros as it is now? I, I didn't really think about it as like a stepping stone to go pro. I always wanted to go pro before college. College wasn't even on my mind. I still feel so, so terrible about this. I'll try to – Brian Bolin called me. Um, I, my – you know, when – I think he found out, like, I was starting to look at college because this was my junior year in high school. I mean, I was on – I don't think people thought I was going to go. And then he called me, and I, I, I feel so bad. I had no idea who Virginia was. I just knew what they were not – all I did was follow college football. So I'm like, well, they don't have a good football team. I don't want to go there. So, um, so I politely said on the first phone call, I'm like Brian, like, Hey, sorry. Like I, um, I think I'm pretty set with my choices, not knowing I think I'd lose to them every single year. I'd play them at Florida state. So funny. I, I just, yeah, I, I didn't know anything about college tennis. I just knew, uh, I wasn't good enough to go pro at least to, to make money. And yeah. cause that's, that's to me is, is if you're going to skip junior college tennis is because you think you can be making money two, three years in. And I, I wasn't ready. So I said, okay, well let's go to college and Florida state. Well, I, like I just mentioned, it was football first. So I was a Florida state fan growing up. Um, so that definitely brought to my attention that school. And then when I got to actually know who was on the team, cause I had no idea. I was like, Oh my gosh, these are a bunch of Florida people. These are, and these are my friends, people I grew up playing with, people I grew up losing to left and right. Uh, Itai Abugzir, who's number two in the world as a junior behind Andy Roddick, was on that team. I just said, my gosh, you know, I, I think if I join this team, I think we can actually do something special here. And if I can do that at a university that I already love and I get to go to football games free, that's a dream come true for me. And so, I wasn't thinking about playing pro. I just said, well, I know I want to continue playing tennis and we'll see where this thing goes. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I, I joked around once with Coach Bolin when we had him on the show many moons ago. I was like, I guarantee you, if I look in the history of the U.S. Postal Service, there's a letter from the office of Brian Bolin to the Djokovic family being like, dear Novak, like I would just like to explain why the University of Virginia would be good to you because, you know, these coaches are going to call everyone. And that is fascinating to hear because when you look back at your college time and, you know, sounds like it was a pretty simple decision for you. If you were giving advice, and I'm sure you do give advice to players now that you work with, would you say take all your visits? Or, you know, what would you're going through the college process? What are the things players should be looking for? Take all your visits. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I, the biggest advice I give to everybody is, you know, they always try to find the perfect setup, the perfect coach, like this, the people that they love. It's like, Look, you have no idea what you're walking into. Just like you're going to get to know these people over the course of a year or so, six months. You'll kind of see where you're at. But um, it's okay if you don't get along that great with one of the two coaches. Like, you know, personalities are what they are. Um, everyone's doing their best. And you, you just want to make sure you can get along with the team. And at the same time, that when you go practice, this was the hardest thing for me to learn growing up playing an individual sport is when I came to a team, practices were organized in a team manner. So I struggled with that because I struggled with the idea of, well, I don't think this is what a player should be working on or this, I don't, I'm never going to do this. So why am I going to practice this? So I think just going into school is just more open-minded, just be a good teammate. 
get to know your coaches. They're trying to do their best, but they've got, you know, nine, 10 other guys who are trying to manage at the same time. And you're a bunch of, let's face it, you're not adults just because, you, you know, you can drive legally. And some of you can, you know, when you're 21, you can, you know, buy some adult beverages. Um, that doesn't mean you guys are adults. And so it's, it's hard for these coaches to try to manage everybody. So give them a break. Uh, sit down, talk to them, listen to them. And, yeah, just, you know, just be willing to learn as soon as you walk in. And I think uh, a lot of times today too many people are just, I don't like this team. I don't like these coaches. I'm out. Mm -hmm. And it's like, did you really make an effort to get to know everybody? You know, find out about who they are, what they're there for, coaches as well, what they're going through. Um, That's my advice to everybody right now when they're trying to choose. Yeah, it makes sense. And yeah, why wouldn't you take the five visits? It's like you can go to five college campuses, check them out, enjoy yourself, get to know the team, get to meet all of these people. I'm always interested. You talk about having pro tennis aspirations, knowing you wanted to play pro. I know you go back to 2006 to 2010 range, but to our listeners who don't know the college tennis history as well as others, let's be clear, John Isner's in college at that time, and you know Kevin Anderson's floating around as well, obviously, what Somdev goes on to do towards the back half of your career. He was Stevie before Stevie, for those of the uh, yeah. people out there who don't know. And you, know, you have a young Bradley Klon, all these different faces, people who would go on to the top 100 was the level what you expected in college tennis better, worse? And I'm curious how it helped your development. Oh, it was way higher. I had the biggest <laughs> slap in the face my freshman year. Um, look, I, I grew up part of the group where if you went to college tennis, you, you're probably not going pro. You, you okay. fail. Um, I didn't think of myself as a failure, but so when I walked in, my coaches, uh, and, and this is going to it is very disrespectful to all the players, but I learned my lesson hard. And that changed my mind very quickly my first fall semester. Going into the fall season, the coaches asked me what my goals were for that fall. And I said, I wanted to make quarterfinals of All-Americans like first year. Um, <laughs> just, yeah, I'm like, well, yeah, why not? And I lost first and first. Yeah, first round main draw, first round qualifying. I remember I ended up playing Bobby Cameron, final round qualifying. Um, Bobby Cameron, for those who don't know, they're playing number one at Tennessee, top 20 in the country, one of the best juniors in the world. I played him back draw of all Americans. <laughs> I, I, I lost to Chris Klingman, Ohio State, like oh, one sure. and one first round. I'm like, oh, this guy's not like number one in number two in the lineup. I'll be all right. And then boom, destroyed 8 a.m. match. My second year, I mean, I played J.P. Smith first round qualifying all Americans. You know, so yeah, I mean, I learned pretty quick. Like, hey, man, this, this is a lot tougher than what you think it is. And that was a good wake up call going into the, to the spring season. So yeah, I learned a lot. Would you say, you alluded to this earlier, and I know we're kind of going all over the place here, um, but you said making money. Is that the litmus test, in your opinion, to going pro versus going college? If you are making money and you are financially even, I mean, typically that means you're probably top 200 in the world, which might be a rankings benchmark. But do you think that should be the standard for going pro or not? How do you view that line? I think it should be. I mean, if you're going to skip college and risk not having – uh, a great education, which look, you can get a great education traveling the world, being a pro, managing your life. You can learn a lot. You can do a lot of stuff on the road. And just saying to give up that opportunity to go to college tennis and you never make a dime, you know, or at least for eight years, you're losing. I mean, I, I wrote a blog when I was four or 500 in the world, I was losing $35,000 a year. 
with no sponsor. Well, mom and dad sponsoring. Thanks, mom, dad. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, if, I mean, if you're just losing money left and right for seven, eight years, remember, if you're going pro, it's because that's your job. I mean, you shouldn't be having to ask mom and dad for money. Um, so, I mean, that's what stopped me after like four years. I'm like, I'm still losing money. Like, I can't do this as a job. I'm 27 years old at this point. So if you're going to skip college, it's because you can make that your job within the next couple of years. Um, now, whether through that sponsors or whatever, like income has to come from somewhere. There's a lot more ways you can do it now. UTR events, uh, gosh, club tennis events in Europe. I never did that. I've learned a lot about that. Afterwards, you can make money there. That's the hidden um, ecosystem. I would love nothing more than to be flown out because I would have to need the resources, guys. Sorry. Um, we'll do it on Patreon. And just cover club tennis for like two weeks and just say, hey, here's the list of current for guys from college, former guys from college who all go to Europe in like November, December and make sneaky good money, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can make some really good money out yeah. there, but you can also play really tough matches. You'll get yeah. guys that are top 100, top 150 that come out and play. I've heard of guys even top 50 in the world just kind of stop in play a couple matches, make a nice paycheck, and they just move on. And so there, there, there's definitely ways that you can do it. If So if you're finding ways to do that, okay, fine, go play. Or if you're financially well off and, you know what, your family can support you and, you know, you can go to college after when you're done or whatever, then that's fine. But if you're just losing money like me, $35,000 a year, $50,000 a year for your first four years, five years with no sponsors to back you, and you're just destroying your family's wealth. Like, no, I think that's I think that's wrong. That's spoken like someone who worked for 14 months in the Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management Division in Miami. So that's a, that's a I, sponsored answer there. Uh, let's be clear. Yeah. But I also think it's a very good one. And you know, by the way, I don't know if you're a basketball fan. Maybe you are. Um, Go Heat. Yeah. Okay. You hear stories about. I don't know how to say his first name, but the older Sabonis, and like he was a legend in Europe, and then he comes over to the NBA. Who's the European club legend in tennis that we don't talk about enough, but it was like, oh, he used to just kill it in November and December? Because you really do hear stories about all these guys who, especially 80s, 90s, like early 2000s, would go play these club events and make this money. So that's, that's again, I owe the Patreon subscribers a deeper dive on that topic later on, but... I bring up that Morgan Stanley sabbatical from tennis, quite the sabbatical, dare I say. Um, you talk about having pro aspirations after, or, you know, going into college. After you graduate, you decide to take a break from tennis. What led to that decision? I burned myself out. Okay. And Explain. I, I add in the myself out because at that time, I blamed everybody else but me. Okay. But I was given opportunities to work with a, a sports psychologist on campus I was given opportunities to sit down and talk. I, I put so much pressure on myself to get better and win um, that it just took its toll on me. And after my sophomore summer, after my, my sophomore season, I, I think I only lost three matches. And I think they were to Danny Valverdu, Somdev, and I forget who the third person is. I mean, I probably like Nate Snug, if I had to guess. I played him the following year, junior year, national indoors. We didn't finish that match. Um, <laughs> okay. Not a bad guess, though. Yeah. No, but I've got an interesting story about that. I mean, well, <laughs> there's too many stories. Like you said, we can really lose time. But, yeah, so, you know, after my sophomore year, I made a commitment where I, I had a good summer on the pro circuit. I, going into college, I was the highest-ranked ATP player my junior year. 
Um, and I said, okay, well, pretty much just let's crush it. College tennis, like a little bit of disrespect I put in my freshman year and let's go pro. Let's just kind of get one more season over with and let's go pro. And I started off okay in the fall. I won another pro event in the fall, what 15 K, which is what a 25 K now, um, beat some good players, beat guys that were three, 400. And so I go into the junior year and I just, I was so ready. I just thought I was just. I was ready to be number one in college, top three in college. I was, I was trying to win NCAAs, and I was so focused on winning that I actually lost. <laughs> so, you know, the, the whole, you know, focus on your process thing, I failed to do that. I just, I made sure I worked as hard as I could. I did everything I could, but if I didn't win, it was pointless. And that really just smashed me. Um, and I just, I couldn't shake it. I, I ended up finishing the year well, but I had like a mental breakdown kind of halfway through that was actually good for me because that was kind of like me letting all the stress out. Um, but I never fixed why I even got to that point. So once the college season was done, I was just like, I can't wait for tennis to be done. And I said, I'll put the rackets in the closet. And if I want to play again, I will. And I didn't do that for another two years. Mm-hmm. Was the time away from the court helpful? Very. I mean, I think, I mean, it wasn't good for my tennis because I was. <laughs> <laughs> Do you play you at know, all during those fourteen months? Like maybe once every no. month. No, ne- never. No. Not even. I'm because I'm sure you're sitting in the Morgan Stanley office and someone. Because I know this when I used and you know I say it's a binary system. It's ones and zeros. You can go to a park right away and be like, "You played tennis. Oh, you're here hitting with your friends." And I like to think yeah. I'm a one on that binary scale. And so, you know, whenever you're there, someone in the office is like, oh, no, I've been playing a ton of tennis. Like, let's go hit. And I was like, trust me, like, you just don't want that. And he's like, no, let's bet money on it. I was like, all right, let's go do it. Um, <laughs> and he's like, he's like, I bet I can get, you know, a set. I was like, how about three games? All you got to get is three games. We'll play two out of three sets is what he wanted to do. Oh, no, whatever. Still riding that money to today. But the point is, yeah. you didn't. I'm sure people would come up to you and say, how good could you know? I play tennis with my friends. How good could you really be? And could that drag you out on the court, or was it literally no tennis? Well, I'll put it this way: because I had a job before Morgan Stanley, okay. uh, and also in finance, but I had a little bit more free time. But when I got to Morgan Stanley, I mean, my, my clock in and clock out time Monday through Thursday was eight fifteen a.m. to seven p.m. So <laughs> not the greatest. The last thing. Yeah, the last thing I was doing was you know, like trying to spend more energy playing tennis. I was just trying to like just go to bed and get yeah. ready for the next day. And then Friday afternoons, kind of sneak out six fifteen, six thirty. But I was going straight to happy hour. Yeah. I mean, I was just like <laughs> I've been dying all week. Like I, I need you know something here to kind of calm down. And then, but then that would be me Friday afternoon until Sunday afternoon, and then I'd be like, I kind of have to get ready for work tomorrow. Um, so no, I mean the last, the only thing on my mind was fun and de-stressing and trying to do the stuff I was never able to do growing up, which is just be with my friends, hang out. If I want to go to the beach, go to the beach. If I want to eat a pizza, I eat a pizza. That's all I wanted to do. Um, and you know, I think the 20 pounds later show that I I got what I wanted. (laughs) Yeah. So with that in mind, a little heavier, it's hot in Miami and God knows what gets you back out on court. Watching, I started watching guys that on TV that I played against in college, or um, you know, Stevie was starting to show up now on tour, and uh, Nedevoyesov was top hundred. He was over at Oklahoma State. I'd beaten him national indoors. I'm like, wow, okay. And then, you know, the stress of just finance 
yeah. again, the same stress of tennis. I'm just finding a different avenue to, to, to stress myself out was, <laughs> sure. I mean, I, but since I never fixed how to deal with it, I was just burning myself out left and right. And then finally, once I kind of figured out the job and felt comfortable with it, once that challenge was like, all right, kind of like eight months in, cause I almost lost my job. They warned me like, dude, you got to step it up or you're kind of out, man. Sure. And so I got it together, figured out that challenge felt pretty comfortable. And once I felt comfortable, I was like, this is it. This is, this is going to be my life. Yeah. And so I said, this doesn't make me as happy as I was on the tennis court. And so I'm unhappy at work. And so now I was like, okay, well, look, I'm going to have to work for the rest of my life. Finance will be here. Tennis will not. So why don't we just give it a shot? It wasn't to make, by the way, this, this was not to make money. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you might've read this before. One of my bosses said, you know, you're making financially the stupidest mistake of your life. Yeah. I said, I, I know I'm very aware, but I'm not doing this to make money. I just, I need to find somewhere to be happy. And I just want to give it two years and we'll just kind of, or until the money runs out and we'll see what happens. And, and that's what I did. How was the process of get? how long did it take you to be like, I am back from a tennis playing perspective? How long did it take you to feel comfortable with your level? Or do you still think 21 year old, you would have popped you at that time? No. Well, I, I would say I got to be a better, more skilled player. The second time around, because, you know, just some of the coaching I got was just different and it brought in some new, new things that I hadn't learned before, Mm -hmm. but the mentality I had in college would have just destroyed the player I was. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, when you get on the court and you're competing it, 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 it does get to a point where it's more about, you know, who has a better mentality, who's tougher come those pressure situations. And at first it was all fun and games and I was doing great, just swinging away and not worrying too much. Got to the point where I was like, okay, look, I guess I'm doing pretty well. Let's, let's continue to do this. So second, I recognized I was doing pretty well, just like at Florida state, you know, I, I made that extra push. I, I put in the extra effort, cleaned out the diet, everything. And I lost more than I was winning before. So, you know, but I had a mentality at Florida state that was, I wasn't afraid of playing anybody. Uh, I, I didn't care who was on the other side of the court. Um, I, I felt like, you know, it, because when you're playing for your team, it doesn't matter what you think. You have a job to do and you need to help your team. So it doesn't matter who, what you think, what you feel. you got to find a way to get that point. And I went at it with that mentality. And when I got a little older, a little smarter, a little too aware of how good some guys were, you know, and that was actually bad for me. So, is, yeah. When you make that trend, because it, again, one a year and a half, did, did you ever feel from a movement perspective? This is a really stupid question, but I have noticed in my later years, not that I was ever the athlete you were, but again, binary system, one, zero, I think I'm a one. Um, the one thing I'll never get back, it's just like the first step, it's gone. It's just like, I, I don't oh, play yeah. enough anymore. Did you feel that at first? And do you ever feel like you got that first step back? No, I, I definitely got it back and I got to be way faster because that's good, you know, but it took, oh my gosh, I would say about two and a half years. Okay. Um, I remember the first like five, six months I was training over at Harold Solomon's in, in, in Fort Lauderdale and I was doing some of the fitness with the juniors and the juniors were just crushing, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm running as hard as I can. I just can't, I can't. Um, but that's what made me realize how hard the game actually is, how long it takes. Uh, cause I, when I was at Morgan Stanley, I was averaging about 25 minutes of fitness time a week, yeah. a week, literally. I, I just wouldn't care. I'd run for like five minutes 
I just want to get my bench press up and literally I would leave. That's it. Yeah. No legs, no cord, no nothing, no movement. Um, so yeah, it took a long time with a good fitness trainer that I found up here in Atlanta at Ginepri's Academy, Paul Fortunato. We got a lot faster. Mm-hmm. What people talk so frequently about life on tour being a grind. And for you coming off of the Morgan Stanley grind, I'm curious. I know you're going country to country. Obviously, the pay is not the greatest. You are losing money. What was that life like for you, week in, week out, going from tournament to tournament? Did you enjoy it more than more more than the Morgan Stanley run, despite you know again how stressful it can be? Well, I, I had two different experiences, right? I mean, when I when I was playing, I, I only got to four fifty, so I spent most of my time on the future circuit and a little bit in the challengers. Didn't have a lot of money, so I tried to stay in the states. Yeah, which is. Probably made my situation a lot tougher because futures that those ITFs in the states, my gosh, they're they're ridiculous. Decatur, I mean, Illinois, of, is a rite of passage. Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, I played in Peoria, Illinois. They took that tournament <laughs> away. I Edwardsville, mean, the, the shout out. Yep, Edwardsville. They play on these high school courts. I don't know what surface that was. I swear, <laughs> I don't know what it was. Um, yeah, I mean, so that was one type of grind. You know, you're splitting rooms. I remember splitting a room with three, four other guys just to try to make the budget work. Um, there was that kind of grind, but then, you know, the grind when I was coaching Riley, which would, now I was literally traveling the entire world. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not doing that when I was, a, I was trying to limit my travel to save as much money. And so I would say the first year and a half, I enjoyed it uh, because I was just so happy not being in an office and just doing what I love and, and not worrying actually about results or money or anything. I knew I was just, I I was literally out there for fun and I just want to give my best shot. And I started to enjoy a little bit less once I started to worry about the results more. And I think there's a little bit of a similar thing with Riley. I think I I love to travel at first and especially when my heating care of my wife came along. So it was fun. Um, He would do his own thing on on some days. He, He didn't need to be around me all the time. He was very independent. So, you know, I got to explore some cities. I explored cities with him. It was, it was, a, it was a blast. And then COVID hit and it just, you can imagine. I mean, it was great that we had a job, but that was not the same type of travel. So, um, and then you, you are going to the same places over and over. Um, so it does change a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I definitely do want to ask about the Riley experience. I don't want you to divulge too many house secrets, but uh, I do want to get there. You know, that said, I, I'm not going to name names, but I've heard some pretty good Airbnb stories over my time about what happens at some of these futures events and going or challenger events, going place to place. And, you know, you have the house party, someone falls through the ceiling, whatever it may be, all these different things. Um, again, balancing that in on paper, in theory, as a fan, you think life of a pro tennis player probably pretty fun you play your match you practice that's really the focus how in your mind distorted is like the picture fans have of what the life is for a pro player particularly one of those players in your situation 400 to 700 in the rankings like do you still have the fun are you still doing things on a random thursday or is it like you know again as high as the good weeks are the fact of like you lose on a monday and now you're just sitting here for a week you know, the, those are those lows are unmistakable as well. I would say everything is what you make it. Sure. And, 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 you know, I've been fortunate enough. I've had a couple of different jobs and I think it's pretty similar across all of it. It's what you make it. It's what you're looking at. It's what you're focused on. Um, 
you know, at first I had an unbelievable time just traveling. I mean, I got to see some old friends playing these future circuits. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, you just get to play tennis. Wow. Okay. So you had to show up two hours early to stretch and warm up and listen to a podcast while you're doing your dynamic warm up. What a tough life. <laughs> um, you know, it just gets a little stressful if it does become financial, you know, then, then you just start looking at stuff like, why am I really doing this? Um, so it just becomes what you're focused on the life itself. Yeah, it is a grind. Absolutely. You could be splitting hotel rooms with three, four friends, but imagine splitting a hotel room with three, four friends playing tennis. So it, it is what you kind of look at at that point. So on the one hand, it's like, my gosh, I could, uh, but at the other time, it's like, can you imagine being with your buddies, you know, traveling around and, playing tennis and stuff. So if you're financially okay, but that's the hard part. It's, it's the financial part that kind of crushes everybody. That yeah. gets to a point where you, you go to Chipotle and we always make this joke is that, are you getting guac or not? <laughs> you know, yeah. cause it's like, no man, I need that dollar 85, you know, cause yeah. that adds up if I do it every week. Right. I mean, so, and, and I think the same thing is on the pro tour with Riley. I mean, on the one hand, um, it, it, it's at a higher level. You have bigger cities, bigger cities. They do treat you very well, but, you know, we had to play a, a first match up at Rome, 11 a.m., and he has to do his warm-up so early in the morning because he does things properly. Yeah. So we're up at 6 a.m. I'm bringing my own breakfast to the courts because they're still closed. Yeah. So I'm heating up oatmeal at an espresso machine just to get warm water. Yeah. I've got my oatmeal bag that I brought from the United States for emergency moments. <laughs> And I'm making him breakfast at the courts because the bre- the breakfast at the hotel was closed, right? Yeah. So you can either think like, Jesus, is this life on tour? Or you can think, wow, I'm doing this at the Rome Masters event. Like, how cool is this? Getting ready to play, whatever. So that's how I've kind of learned to look at everything. Quaker? Quaker oatmeal? No, the Red Mill gluten-free quick cooking oh my, oats. That's, I mean, he's a pro. <laughs> you said doing it right, so that's fair, but that's miserable. <laughs> but that's not his call. That's that's my call. He doesn't ask me to. He wasn't asking me to bring this. I would always bring it because during COVID, there were a lot of times where like you couldn't go out and get food. Mm-hmm. So I needed a backup plan. Like you arrive at a hotel at ten o'clock. There were, you know, kitchens that were closed, and then all the restaurants are closed. What are you going to eat? You just flew in. Yeah. That was a legit problem we had. We had it in Australia. I mean, it was midnight. I couldn't get food. Three but words: pepperoni hot pocket. It's it saved many lives, oh, yeah. and and he's yeah. seven feet tall. He can again. It's a free. It's a, the first four hundred calories are free for Riley, so it doesn't even. Yeah, count. It's carbs, right? Yeah, yeah carbs. but oh my god, a red oat. Ugh, that's that's that. You're, that right there is the trade that makes it not worth it. Um, I'm a quick cinnamon <laughs> guy myself, for what it's worth. Or like I put cinnamon there. Okay. Oh, a little homemade. Okay, now we're talking. A little homemade sprinkle. Yeah. And, and a little banana, you know, cut up some little banana pieces All right. in there. You know what? I didn't know we were working a full parfait here. That's a whole different discussion now. Like I said, we do things right. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Well, you know, again, for you, 17 pro titles at various levels. I think it was three singles, 14 doubles. You decide to hang things up and you become the head of a junior program, I believe, in Georgia. Um, and, you know, for you, and you've talked about this before, uh, or on on Twitter various times, but that junior development role, what was that like for you? What was it like going from playing at the pros to coaching the juniors? So this was totally something I, I just wasn't ready to, to, to experience. Um, you know, I needed money more than anything. 
That was the most important. I needed money and it was a good job (laughs) at a great place. uh, And and one of the most beautiful facilities in the country running a junior program in tennis. So I was like, wow, this is great. You know, and they wanted to try to build up, uh, you know, the, the, a little bit more of the high performance side and, you know, just, just do some good things for the program. And I just kind of found out what country club tennis really is all about. Um, nothing wrong with it. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. I, I'm not saying that in a bad way. There, there just is a difference between country club tennis, a normal after-school program, and after-school high-performance program. There's many different ways that people enjoy tennis, and you know, and they're happy with that. And that was something I had to learn where someone literally, they might love their one day a week. They're coming out there. They still play four other sports. They're not coming three days a week, four days a week. They're not signing up for USTA or UTR tournaments. And they're totally happy with their life. And that was, that was hard for me because I hadn't been around that. Everyone I'd been around, like tennis was it for them. So I just got to learn a lot about how, you know, working in with people like that and, and what that dynamic was. And to find out it, it wasn't for me, you know, it just, that's not the type of coach I am. Like, I, if you're not trying to become a legit better tennis player, I'm going to struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I needed to be around more people like that. Mm-hmm. No, I can only imagine the culture shock. And I'm curious, you talk about that in terms of enticing players to play the sport. Because obviously, if you're going to grow the sport, it's going to start with kids enjoying to play it early in their lives. And then it sticks with them throughout. Were there things that stood out to you in that sense of... You know, again, the junior development role, I'm not exactly sure how to phrase this question, but in your experience with the junior development, are we doing a good job of enticing kids to stick with tennis moving forward, in your opinion? No. We (laughs) suck. Yeah, not unfair. You know, I I think – I also get why it's tough, Mm -hmm. but, you know, if you accept the role, I think, you know, there's a certain way to do it. So – I, I think there's a couple of things happen. Gosh, I could go on for hours. Just stop me whenever you want. But, you know, most pros, you know, they're teaching tennis all day. So by the time they get to the end of the day and they have to deal with kids, it's hard for them because these kids come, they're so happy to just not be sitting in a chair that they're just like running ragged. You know, they, they need to burn this energy off. So, you know, the younger they are, the harder it is to try to control them and teach them stuff. They're fidgety. They want to hit balls. They want to run, play. And, and to teach technique and footwork, you know, you have to take your time with it. You can't just run drills and exhaust them. you got to do some stationary things at first. That takes time. That takes patience. And it's very easy to give in and just be like, all right, just around the world, whatever. Play jail. Fun. Okay, just, just be quiet and pick up the balls when you're done, please. Don't, don't hit them. Don't throw the balls. Like, you know, all this stuff. It's hard, right? It takes a lot of energy. So I, I think a lot of coaches get burned out by the time they get to that point. Uh, the other part is I think coaches take advantage of parents that maybe don't watch or don't know any better. So they don't know what a real tennis program that's really focused on getting kids better. Mm-hmm. Because my whole thing is if you learn to play the game better, you're going to enjoy it more. So if, you, if you're better at something, you're going to stick with it. If you think you're awful at it, by the time you're 11, 12, you have a little bit more awareness of I kind of suck at this sport. You know, I'm a little better over there. Like, and I got to play with my friends. It's a team sport. So I'm just not going to play tennis as much. And that's where you lose them. But if you're a good coach, you create a good environment. You really help people, the kids create, uh, develop friends there. And at the same time, you help them really understand what they're doing and you help them get better. 
even if you're only doing that one to two days a week, if they're having such a good time and they're really learning, they're going to want to come a little bit more and a little bit more. And that's how you sort of, and you bring them in. And I think we fail at that. Um, you know, it, for gosh, for many other reasons too. So no, I, again, I'm happy to explore as many of them as you're willing to chat about here. I think part of it is also, again, if you're playing football, you're going to see football prominently plays every Saturday, every Sunday throughout the fall, college level, pro level. It's on your TV screen. Obviously, I think that's an issue with tennis as well. Does the lack of pro, how does the lack of pro visibility, I suppose, hurt from the junior perspective? Definitely, because I hear from a lot of kids when they finally do go to a pro tournament, they're like so excited about what they saw. Like, oh my gosh, like they hit the ball so hard and yeah. they're so fast and that's how they get excited about it. And, you know, but they don't see it enough. You know, where in Europe, you have so many tournaments that you can easily take a train ride to. There's qualifying. I mean, you go to qualifying at some 250, 500 event. I remember in Barcelona, seeing qualifying and it was full, full. You know, I'm just like, there's this passion for the sport that's amazing. Um, you know, they, they let kids out of school to just go watch tennis. They allow that, you know, they're okay with that. They're, they're more flexible with that. Uh, the States, they're very inflexible with that. Um, and yeah, there's not a lot of tournaments. Tournaments are really spread out. So it's very hard to you know access these tournaments. So I definitely do think that's a, a, a barrier. And, but I think that's also where parents come in. Okay. Do you have tennis channel on? Do you have cracked rackets on the computer, you know, with their live stream of a college tennis match? And I wrote one of my, my, I think it was my second blog, I think, about what, when I first started my website, about how important watching tennis is and the role that a parent plays when they're sitting there watching tennis with their child and being excited because a child's going to be excited with the parents excited about. They don't know any different. You start them young, then you get to, you, they feel like tennis is cool because you are showing this. The, the awe, the coolness, or the amazingness of Dominic Thiem, open stance backhand from the back corner that is impossible shot. Mm-hmm. But if they never watch that, like most, of, I think 98% of the kids I worked with couldn't name more than three players on tour, you know, in that junior development program. So there's a point where it's like, you also do need the parents to can't go watch them. But let's put it on TV. Let's find other ways to try to get them to, to get that passion going, especially if you've already started them playing tennis well, then, okay, great. They've hit some balls. They love it. Now try putting it on TV and j- just leave it there, you know, and sit with them. Don't just look for them to just give you some moments of peace, which I peace, which I, I have a child now. I understand that. But, <laughs> you know, if you want to develop that passion, I mean, you kind of have to do a little bit of your own effort. For sure. And if you have a young child, nothing will put them to sleep like a round of 32 battle at some of these ATP and WTA events. Just pop it on the screen. They'll be out by two all, right? I feel like uh, it, yeah. I f- Perfect. I feel like it works. You follow the ball. They're knocked out. They're good to go. Um, yeah. But, you know, with that in mind, you talk about the want to be around people invested in this sport. You go over to USTA player development, uh, obviously, uh, following your time in uh, Georgia. You know, what led to that transition? What led to you getting into the USTA, dare I say, ecosystem? Well, I was looking, you know, to be around more people like that and work with players like that. And... You know, so speaking with it, Matt Clower was working for them. Sure. Matt was a, my assistant coach uh, at Florida State, who's now, now uh, Florida, at UF. Right? Uh, yeah. That's just, just don't, don't. Devastating? 
Heartbreaking. It's weird to like root for him to lose this much and still keep his job somehow. Um, like I, I told him, like, look, I, I want you to somehow lose every match and get a raise. I, I don't know if that can be done, but that's just how I feel. I still love you, man. Yeah, um, great coach, right? To Florida fans out there listening, your your team, Clover, there should be happy with what they got. Oh, unbelievable coach. He was a, a big part of my development. Um, he, he's amazing. Um, just his ability to just stay calm and coach. He knows the game as good as anybody else, both on the tennis side, and he's learned a lot on the fitness side as well. So he knows how to really put together an athlete. Um, I think that that was great. That was a great hire by UF. They're going to be very happy with him. Mm-hmm. Um, God, it's just hard, that emotion. It just distracts yeah, me from what's next. But, yeah, so then, I, you know, they were looking for, for somebody to come in and help with juniors, but then at the same time, Riley was also looking for a travel coach. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was just split up with his coaches. He was going to work with Jay Berger at home, but they needed someone to travel with him. So they asked me if I would be interested in traveling with Riley, you know, roughly 30 weeks a year and just kind of join that team. And I, you know, I'd spent a little time with Riley working with him before I started at that country club. And so I said, you know, as long as my wife is on board and she can come to some tournaments because she's already waited for me playing all these years. Yeah. Uh, they said, yeah, no problem. Perfect. And that's how I got in. Yeah, and you know, I think you were with Riley throughout 2019, right? Is right where you started, if or was it before 20? So we came to agreement December 2017. So 2018 is Newport Beach Challenger. That was our first tournament together. Got it. So were you? I, I guess I'm, what I'm really forgetting was at the end of 18 or 19. I'm pretty sure it was the end of 2018 when he went on his run at like Knoxville. The Challenger, Challenger run, right? That was that was that run. That was end of 2018. Yeah. So you're there for that season, and obviously. Riley, former junior Wimbledon champion, Eddie Her champion. He was one of the guys, that group of him, Fritz, Tommy Paul, Michael Moe, Taylor, uh, uh, Stefan Kozlov, excuse me, Francis, obviously. You know, people knew about Riley, but that 2018 season was really the year where he kind of established himself as a top 100 guy moving forward. What was that roller coaster ride like? What was that end of year run like in particular, where I think he clinches the Australian Open wild card, but then gets into the top 100, so doesn't end up needing it? I imagine that was pretty fun. I think it was so. The whole year was like pretty crazy too, because he got mono that year, right? Um, Early in so, the season, right? So some of the things that Riley did was pretty incredible. You know, it was <laughs> is that Wimbledon we knew something was off. Yeah. You know, he just he was struggling to practice, but he still played through that. We had a pretty mild like summer there. So the temperatures were helping, came back, played Winneka, still bad. And at this point, I think he's like 130. So he's, mm-hmm. he's moving up. He had one Bordeaux challenger. So like, all right, you know, I think we're getting closer to a shot. Of top 100 boom gets mono is out. Then I think like the minute he gets cleared, he just goes to play U.S. Open qualities you know, not quite ready to play, you know, not, a, not at the level we'd love for him to play, but it's like, look, just go play, get some matches, get started. Then makes finals of Chicago challenger yeah. and finals of carry challenger, like back to back, not in shape. We showed up in Chicago and he cramped at practice before the tournament started. It was like the second hour practice of the day. And he's cramping just cause it's 95. So he's still not in shape, but I mean, he pushed through so hard. Uh, you know, it, I was pretty impressive. And then, you know, he gets injured. We we're at the Vegas Challenger. He had to pull out because his back like locked up on him pretty hard. And so he, he doesn't practice for like a week, week and a half. Misses Vegas, misses Charlottesville. 
we, we show up at Knoxville and he'd really only been playing for like three days. We went to go hit that first day. And I think it was the only time all year where I felt like legitimately I had a shot in the baseline game. I mean, he just couldn't <laughs> like, you know, cause I hit with him a lot, especially when we traveled, just me and him would hit that first day. So it's not like his level was very, very high yet. And he, again, wins Knoxville challenger, you know, not in shape, wins it, plays a tough three set match, body's hurting big time. I mean, we drive, we drive right after the final. We arrived like at two in the morning in Champaign because uh, we drove. And then we only had one day off. It was just one of those things where it was a Saturday final, you know, because whatever reason, usually it's a Sunday final. So we didn't have time to recover. And, and he wins it again, be, beating Tommy Paul in the semi yeah. down a set. And so the semi, that was the one to get the wild card. Mm-hmm. I think winning the tournament guaranteed in top 100 you know, without the wild card. And so, but I mean, he was in so much pain, back, shoulder, you can imagine, he's just not ready to play this many matches. So he pushed through so hard. I mean, that that was impressive. I, we're just kind of going day by day, just happy to be there at that point. And then I remember I was so nervous going into those last two matches. <laughs> we didn't talk about it, but I knew it was on the line. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember the Tommy match in particular because, obviously, I think Tommy, was that the area at a really good Charlottesville? Either made the final. Yeah, he won Charlottesville. Yeah, that's, yeah, where he won it uh, that year. And so it came down to the two of them, obviously. Their story, well-known, the history between them. Yeah, I like, I, again, to play for so much on the line so late in the season, I especially I, now that you bring up the mono, it's like you're right. I do remember him being out after winning that Bordeaux Challenger and playing so well that it was like, and now he's not going to play the summer hard courts. This doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, you know, that said, what especially being in that journey, what what's the difference between, you know, getting to that top 100 versus the level at the challenger, you know, futures level? Do you see that big of a jump in the levels as, you know, you're riding alongside? I mean, for, for him, yes, because I just knew, like, I mean, this guy, you know, he's the potential of being top 10, top five player. So sure. when he was playing his best tennis, I mean, you just, a lot of these guys just, you know, you knew that they had no chance that day. Um, for me, it's, the I would movement. Say, it's like someone that tall shouldn't move as well as he does. Right. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, so we could see his movement starting to come together. So now he could play offense well with a serve, but then when he can move well, you're like, this is just ridiculous. You know, now <laughs> yeah. I can't even put him on defense. So, um, and, and of course he's only gotten even better at that. So yeah, I mean, there is a jump and you can just, there's, there's a focus within these guys. There's an ability to stay locked in. And they're just machines. Um, whereas, you know, guys at the futures level, they can show moments where they can play that well. They just can't sustain. You know, the, the mental strength is a big thing. And I think that that shows up also on how, you know, if you were to take a deeper look at how they manage their day-to-day over a couple months, there's a different level of professionalism. Not, not so much just forehand, backhand, but just the way they handle everything. And that creeps in, you know, to the big moments and matches. Mm-hmm. No, I mean... I feel like for Riley too, and again, I don't mean to 
sacri- you know, make you talk about the church here. Um, but I feel like the serve is also – it's just like he's going to get better as a server. That's always the thing to me when I talk about Riley. It's like why I continue to think so fondly of his game. It's not because he's seven feet and can hit the serve as well as he does. It's because he does everything else so well already. And it's like I feel like he still doesn't – I feel like he still hasn't hit the ceiling as a server. When as a server and as a player, I think we looked at the serve just the way we looked at the other his entire game. And I think credit to Riley to buying into that, which is not easy at times. It's, it wasn't perfect, but everything was just about, look, just keep everything get better. Just keep getting better. Mm-hmm. So, and if you think about it, when you think about, I bring this up to juniors a lot, you know, Nadal changing his service motion the year before he won the U.S. Open. I think he was already one in the world. You know, Federer using the open stance when he won that Australian Open after – you know, Djokovic adjusting his serve and volleys. I mean, it's, if you just keep getting better, you know, you're going to get better as a player and you're going to win more. So just always keep getting better. And I think the serve is something that, just like anything else, we always continue to look at how can we get it better. We're always evaluating things. You know, can it get better? Can we get the toss here? Can we do this? Can we do that? Uh, we're just always looking to get better. So, because it's it's never good enough, but you you kind of need a little bit of never good enough in your mentality to to make it to the top. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this: Was Riley as into museums then as he is now? No, not at first. Okay. I would say 2019 is when I really felt like things were. I I knew he was into fashion and all that. That was definitely there. I think 2019 when he first we were in Tokyo and he said, "We of course were you know." Couldn't wait to go in the city. Time change. We're, we're practicing first ones, 8, 9 a.m. We're awake. And I remember he's like, hey, you want to go to some museums today? I was like, really? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm here for you. So let's do it. And, and that was the first time that was, you know, was it September 2019, where for me, I was like, okay. You know, and, and that was, I thought, the cool part of my relationship with him was seeing who he was at 2018 um, versus who he is now. It's been really fun to watch. Dare we say a cultural rena- uh, renaissance for him in that moment? And now, he, yeah, obviously, you know, you can't think culture without thinking Riley Opelka. Um, you know, again, just some rapid fire questions here down the home stretch before I let you go. Rapid fire in the sense that I've got a bunch for you. You know, take as long yeah. as you want on every answer. Um, you look at the current group of Americans, obviously. There are, I believe, nine right now. I, I don't know if Garon's win put him in the top 50 to make it 10, but there are nine Americans in the top 50. Eight of them are born 1996 or later. And obviously this year, so many firsts in American men's tennis since the 1990s. As a somewhat impartial observer of this generation of American men's tennis, how do you feel about the state of the sport right now in the country and, you know, this group moving forward over the next decade? No, I said it like a while back. I mean, this group is going to do some special things and they're only going to get better. I think that's the one thing I've learned to, to evaluate as a coach is not where they are now, but where they can be a few years from now. I think a lot of times we get stuck on what we're seeing, you know, as opposed to what they can become. It's like just what you saw today doesn't mean that's it. They're never getting better. I mean, these guys are trying to get better. They're all friends that are all out there and, you know, they don't say it out loud, but they notice what each other's doing and that, that helps them push the other guy like, all right, let's, let's go, you know, let's go. And it's just going to be a constant like motivation between these guys. Um, and as they see each other climb and it's going to drag everyone else up. 
this is why Donald Young needed Scoville Jenkins to also make it because if they had each other going up the home, I mean, I, there was a time if you asked nine year old me who's going to be the best tennis player in the world, I would have said Scoville. I would have been like, I don't have a doubt yeah. in my mind, like he's going to be number one. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned it. It is it, how helpful is it to have that group? Do you think is it to have you know again not just Riley but Tommy Taylor Francis uh, even Michael Stefan belong in that conversation? Obviously the younger guys Brooksby Korda Nakashima they're kind of a trio as well. How necessary is that? Uh, I don't know if necessary. It just helps a lot okay. because I mean imagine being on the pro tour and you're traveling with your buddies everywhere you go. It just makes the entire experience better. Uh, you show up at tournaments, your friends are there. You can practice with your friends. It's a lot more fun. You go to lunch in between matches or practices. You're there with your friends. And for these guys, it's not, they weren't just friends. They were best friends. So imagine how cool that is. So it also takes away some of the grind, the loneliness of the tour that it can be when you're going to dinner with your best friends kind of every week. I mean, I'm an adult. I live at home. I don't even get to do that every week. <laughs> so it's, it's not commonly found. So it definitely helps to make everything more enjoyable. And then when everyone's as good as that, you know, and, and I can't speak too much to Donald's, but I, I always felt like my understanding of the situation was that there weren't any guys that really he could be around. He was so young. It was just so different for him. And, and that was probably a little bit of a different experience coming up on tour. Yeah. Did it surprise you? Could, Sam Queer is your age, right? A little younger? One year. He was 80, I believe he was 87. I'm 88. So you- he's one year older. Do you, when he goes pro, does it, is it kind of like, are you thinking, because I'm thinking about your peer group or like, Ooh, maybe, you know, I'm sure you've, I'm sure you played Sam once or twice in the juniors. I, I know I played him in doubles, Kalamazoo. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I played him in singles. I feel like I did. Mm-hmm. You know, we obviously saw each other everywhere you go, but yeah, I mean, but he was kind of, you know, we knew he was a good junior, but he, he, he admits it, you know, he was going to college and then boom, out of nowhere. When you see someone make semifinals or finals or win a challenger, you're like, yeah, go pro. Yeah, go yeah. do your thing. No, it, it makes sense. And, you know, you might be a little bit biased in this question, but I'll ask it anyways. January 1st, 2030, will the last American men's single slam champion still be Andy Roddick? No. You think it'll be someone else? You want to give me a name? Yeah. That's just so hard. There are a lot of bites at the apple. I think the three one, you know, I have a wager with someone. I say 2026 Wimbledon. That's Riley's. That's been my take for the last four years. So I'm like, I'm still going to hold on to that for a little bit longer. The one I watch is Corda, where I'm just like, if I were to make a modern ATP player in a lab, it would probably be Sebastian Corda. Like, it's hard to argue the size, the length, the fluidity, the backhand. It's like, that's kind of everything I want in my modern player. It, you know, I, I so I was asked a, this question a, a couple of years back. Mm-hmm. And, th- and I've, this is why, I, to my kids I work with now, I'm so much more on the mental side of things because I was asked once, who would you have, like, between Zverev, Shapo, or Felix? you know, winning a slam first. And this was before, and I, like, Zverev had made U.S. Open final, right? And, and I picked Felix because if you looked at his game, you looked at his work ethic, his footwork, his professionalism, you're just like, this is the guy. Like, he plays the part. This is it. Well, this is what you see in a Grand Slam champion. Um, and especially if you would have asked me, like, Casper Ruud, no, what Casper has done, the way he's evolved as a game, 
But if you would have asked me that three, four years ago, I'd say, hey, he's going to really struggle. I mean, he's, you know, and it's amazing what these guys can develop into and change to. You know, Chapo makes the semis of Wimbledon, you know, had Djokovic on the ropes. Zverev, you know, makes finals at U.S. Open, should have won it. You know, you just, it's so hard. You know, you look at the way they look, you just don't know when things are going to click mentally. Again, you would have asked me who makes, you know, has Rublev made a semifinals of a slam? I don't think so. I think still quarters the ceiling for him. Yeah, I would have said he makes the semifinals, you know, before Felix or Chapo, Mm -hmm. you know, and he's been struggling, you know, but he, because he was making quarterfinals earlier and then crushed all those 500s. So you're like, ah, this guy's going to do it. But that's where you just, a slam is a different animal. It's just such a different, it's a different game. It's a different tournament at that point. It's a different mentality. It's just so hard. I I don't know who, I just know someone's going to do it. So I assume that makes you team three out of five sets versus, and I know when you were in college, they didn't play no ad scoring, but you know, this idea of shortening matches to make it more commercially appealing. Is that something that at all resonates with you? I get it. I think when you're watching a best set, when you're watching a fifth set, it's not just the tennis at that point. It's the crowd. It's the emotion to the players. There's an energy within that court that is not the same in the third set of like a master's final. That's whatever. It's just not the same. And it's because everybody knows the effort that's been put in. It's, it's like, you can't recreate what you're watching because you feel it as a spectator in that fifth set. Yes. We all were like, gosh, it's five in the morning. I'm watching this match in Australia. My day's ruined, but you can't turn the TV off. And yes, every part of you is wishing you went to bed three hours ago, but at the same time, you know, you're watching something special and you're going to lose that if you go to best out of three. So yes, you can get more upsets, but you're never going to get that emotion back. Would you rather see best of three sets at the slams or no ad scoring? It's a very weird hypothetical, but I'm just curious. Oh my gosh. I, I, I'd rather, I think I'd rather see best out of five with no ad scoring. Yeah. You know? I, I'd I rather like see no fast four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. No, I always say let's do one event per year where it's just a ground stroke game, two out of three up to 21. That's how the real tennis players like, if you and I are going out to hit, it's not, hey, let's go play a couple sets. It's like, no, we'll play a couple ground stroke games. We'll feel how, where things are at, and we'll go, well, I guess maybe not with you because you're a little bit, you know, as in your coaching role, you'd be like, no, you'd see the forehand, and you'd be like, let's stop there. Uh, we got to do yeah. some work. Um, but, you know, I think it is interesting to see the format played around with and all these different things because, again, and, and I promise, again, we're wrapping the show here shortly, but – as you look at, I, I just think the I I think the attention span thing. I know there's this. I don't want to say myth, but you know there's this idea that our generation isn't watching anything over two hours, and that you have to shorten the product, and that people aren't able to focus for that long. I always say that's bullshit, and it's just like people. It's not that people can't focus that long; it's that they don't want to watch something that's not entertaining for that long, and that's why I like no ad scoring. It's because anytime you incorporate sudden death it's inherently more entertaining. And like, to yeah. me, that resonates more than the best of three. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, how long is a football game? One to four? Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. a football game is actually only like 45 minutes, but it's the commercials. You got to, you got to yeah. weather through. 
Well, if you take out all the walking in between a best out of five mats, it's only about 35 <laughs> minutes to hit. So, That's you know, true. we can make the same argument. So, but yeah, I, I do think that that plays a role in it where it's about the entertainment side. So I get it. I, I do hope, I think there is room for tennis to just try some stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether you want to make it ATP sanctioned for ranking points, that's your own thing. But uh, I do like, like, look, Labor Cup had success. Um, World Team Tennis has been around for a long time. It's it's struggling compared to Labor Cup. You know, the, the, just try stuff. And if it doesn't work out, there's nothing wrong with just saying this is, you know, the NFL is trying to do it with the Pro Bowl now. They're trying to go to a skills challenge. Just try stuff. It's okay. You don't have to do it for like 10 weeks a year. Just try it once or twice. See the feedback. And maybe it's not perfect, but you can build on it. Um, I think more team events, you know, are pretty cool. Like, I think the, the players love it. You know, you ask all the players that play Labor Cup, they love it. So you ask all the players that came from college tennis, they still say they enjoy college tennis more than they do the actual individual match for pro tour. There's something about being around the team. So I think there's more areas they can try a fast four. Just try stuff, you know, have fun with it. Yeah. Well, with that same, is the calendar too long? Should the tennis season be shortened? If the calendar was so long, why isn't the Dow playing exhibitions in November and December? I think that's well said. I also think you can't uh, – this is why I ask that question always because you can't have it both ways where also we talk about the compensation at the lower levels. If you take out November and December, you're taking out two months of income like for so many other players. And that's always my issue in this conversation. It's like I understand if you want to rejigger the tennis schedule and maybe my thing is always stop after the French Open – create a little six-week gap in the summer, maybe like F1 does, where you play some team events or you play the Labor Cup, you play the Davis Cup, you'd make, you know, you offer a training block to the injured players who need it. I would be fine if they wanted to shift things a little bit. I, I do agree with you. Tennis, because it's an individual sport, the nature that it is, it kind of like offers itself to year-round play. Yeah, and I, I do think... I bring that up because mm-hmm. why is he doing it? Because financially it makes sense. Yeah. Okay. For sure. So the hard part for most players is they keep playing because they're searching for that big break where they sure. can then make money the next year. But since everyone else is playing, they're kind of forced to keep up. Mm-hmm. Right. They have to, because if not, people will jump them. So I do think there needs to be a little bit longer. I think it'd be great if there's a longer format, but it, it's also financially these guys keep playing. Federer played exhibitions, and you know these guys have played exhibitions because the, the financially it makes sense. So clearly they're saying we'll just work around our schedule throughout the year because there's so much money to be made at some point. It's fine. So it's a mix, you know. I I, I think the financial situation needs to. It'd be great if it was better for these guys outside of the top hundred. Um, and I think that'll change stuff. I think if financially they're a little better off, then they feel like they can take a couple of weeks off during the year to, to, to kind of save their body a little bit more and go from there. But yeah, like these guys only have three weeks a year to prepare for their off season. Yeah. That's not enough. That's not enough. So we do need more, but at the same time, players are also kind of saying, you pay us enough, we'll keep playing. So they're also screaming they need financial help too. So it's a tough one. 
It, you know. it, it is very tough, especially because it's like also the U.S. Open is never going to shift off of Labor Day weekend. That's their weekend. Right. They want it. It's the moneymaker that pays for everything in American tennis. So sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, Wimbledon can be held in like a three-week stretch of the calendar. Otherwise, it gets too wet. And so it's like that's not moving. And we the sun. Ch- yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's like that has to be locked in. Australia is only tolerable in January. Um, when there's nothing else. No, I don't know. But like, I'm sure there's other constraints on it. It is, it's a lot tougher when you see the full picture. And to your point, it's like you take events off the way out of the way you're taking money out of people's pockets. And clearly that's something they're asking for as well. So it's a big picture topic, obviously was curious to hear your thoughts. Um, I guess I got two more for you and then I'm going to let you go finish the Nate snug story. I want to hear it. I think I kind of hooked him in the third set. You know? <laughs> That's good. You know, I, it's hard. It was one of these, I think I made myself believe it was out. It's not like it was, I think it was, he was serving like break point, one all third set. Remember, this is my junior year. I'm in a bad place mentally. Yeah. I lost the first two matches. Uh, we're playing like our third match, whatever. And I think I had like break point and Nate hits like a big kick short wide on the outside. I, I had a one-handed backhand. He was winning the point for sure. I felt like enough of the ball was out where I could call it out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> called it out. I didn't get overruled. You know, I, I've, I've actually blatantly called a ball that was out on the line and I knew it right away. I took the point and for the next 30 minutes, I felt sick to my stomach. Yeah. I, I never did it again. Um, so that one, I think I forced myself to believe it was out. So I don't know. <laughs> That's so, sorry, Nate. But we didn't finish the match. We stopped, I think, you know, whatever, 4-1, we lost, and they just stopped the match. So I'm glad it didn't, like, come back and bite them. No, that's good. I, I've had this conversation with someone. Have I ever actually gone, like, purposefully cheated someone? And I can point to one. in my life. Yeah, like I, I can point yeah. to one instance in my life where I made a call. I knew it was bad instantly, but my doubles partner was like, no, it's in. And that was actually the first time we played together. And I was like, we're partners moving forward. Like, this is going to work. <laughs> um, and yeah. it's a bond that he was the original co-founder of this podcast. So it's a bond that was it was in a, it was an important hook in my life. Let me be clear. Um, yeah. But yeah, like the problem is you're just going to feel miserable. So my theory is I think in the era of automated line technology players call their own lines and then we let the technology call out who the cheaters are or not because i think that'd be very I, fun that would fans. be fun i would love that like uh, like you just press a button you yeah. know almost like the, the replay is now where okay you want to challenge that great yep you were wrong you cheated them yeah, you know ball three feet inside the baseline this that'd is be what pretty I'm, cool that's what i'm saying it's like it would be fun players will never agree to it ever Ever because they'd be like, no, just let the technology call it instead. I don't want people to think I'm a cheater, but let's have some fun. Let us fans have fun. Yeah. Um, and so that's my other one. All right, my last question. Oh, well, I guess I lied. I'm going to sneak in one more. Give me a Somdev story. What would, I swear to God, 2008 Virginia Somdev in 09, like if he plays Roger Federer in 2008, but they play in like Athens, Georgia, I think Somdev beats him in three. Or where they don't change the balls like they do in college until the end of the set. Yeah, exactly. And you can make your own calls. Well, Tomda never cheated, so I, I don't say it like that. He, he never cheated. But I've also – I no, think I re- he was legitimately the fastest – like in 2008 and nine, he was the fastest person I've ever seen on the tennis court. He was – he was just a machine. So it, my my first Somdev story was the first time I saw him. He actually changed – 
how I went about things, um, about how like my training and practice. I remember being at All Americans and I'd already lost. And we go, we walk by the hotel gym and there's Somdev just running on a treadmill. No, nothing too fast, but he's just, and I, and I forget if this is the exact story to where, yeah, I mean, he wanted to keep up his fitness. So every day he was doing like jogging, if I remember correctly. So one way or another, like seeing him work out, any one All-Americans, of course, that led me to thinking like, yeah, that makes sense. Why would I stop doing fitness just because I'm at a tournament? Like my fitness is going to go down. So ever since then, I did fitness everywhere I went. Even if I was at the hotel gym with 10 pound dumbbells, 20 minutes, just enough to maintain something. Um, because I was like, well, if he's the best player in college and he's doing that, well, I got to beat him somehow. So I can't let him outwork me. So he changed how I, and I did that for the rest of my career. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I did that everywhere I went. Um, I don't think he missed a backhand for three years. Like I'm pretty sure, like, again, just talk about a guy who was a rock him and Trett Huey. I think they could have walked in the top 100 as a doubles pairing. They were really good at the end. Oh, well, um, Trett ended up being top 15. So, yeah, Trett. No, know. but I'm saying as a pairing, like there's, they just, you're oh right. Gosh, Obviously, yeah. Trett was top 15. And so, you know, again, all those teams, Inglot, all of them. Did you see the UVA run coming by the time you were done? Because they were undefeated, what, 09? Um, no, I, I don't know. I never thought about stuff because I was so into it myself. Like sure. every, every team I, we played against, I tried to find holes to see how we could beat them. You know, we, Let me tell gosh, you this. we choked a Houston Barrick at six is a hole. I'm just going to, I'm going to throw that out there. Houston Barrick. Well, you know, so Houston played on the team. I think we beat him. I really want to remember. We beat him and this Greek guy. I, I think, oh, I uh, oh don't say it. I team. can see him. Yeah, I can see him. Yes. I'll, I'll yeah. think of the name in a second, but go on. Yeah, yeah, so we play them at three doubles, like at UVA. We're like, these guys are three doubles. Are you joking? And we won. So we actually got up. It's either three zero or three one. My freshman year, you know, I was up four two in the third against Huey. Another guy served for the match. Another Teddy Angelinos. It just popped in my head. That's yeah, wow. what you're thinking of. Wow, that that's. I still got it. I still got it. Right there. Yeah, I still got it. So, um, so yeah. I mean, I I always saw how people were beatable, but I did see how like. Some guys were number six, like Jamie Hunt and Nate Snug being number six and seven at UGA. Because it was funny. So that was the year they won it. I was recruited also by UGA that year. I chose to go to Florida State, and I'm playing two, and these guys are playing six or seven. So I knew, I'm like, that's ridiculous. If Jamie was here at Florida State, he'd be playing one, two, or three. You know, same thing with Nate. And I was like, and these guys are playing six or seven? That tells you what kind of team they got. So you knew it was going to be hard to beat them, but – you, you just again you don't know how long people are going to keep things up you know it's hard to do it mentally to be able to stay that tough no it's it, it's a really fun era of college tennis because there actually are again a really uh, a really fun group of names who did go on to have pro success the last question for you halloween a couple of days away how many times have you just gone out and be like yeah i'm at norton and people are like, oh, I see it. Like, you've got the face. That's the doppelganger. <laughs> I've never actually gone out. I've, I have gotten that one. So, but I've never actually gone out and done this. I, I got to do that. Fight Club. Jeez. Yeah, that's, uh, a, that that's a layup. Work. That's a good one. And now you have a kid. She can be like the bar of soap. Or, you know, I don't uh, know. Well, we're going to be Scooby-Doo, the, the, uh. the whole thing this year. Now, we got a dog. We got a little, you know, 10-month-old baby. Are you Fred or Shaggy? Yeah. That's the question here. Shaggy. Oh, yeah, I wanted sense. to be Fred. 
I wanted to be Fred. I'm like, he's built nice, you know, strong. He's the leader of the group. Yeah, your, your 10 month old was like, yeah. I don't know, Dad, you don't quite have the leadership capabilities of a Fred. She's, 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 <laughs> yeah, she's like, you're more of a shaggy. You, yeah. know? you don't dress up that well in the morning anymore. You wear your PJs, and loose clothing, trying to be comfy, Dad. Yeah. yeah, Dad, Fred had a two-ended backhand. Come on now. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, all these different things. Well, this was a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, again, I have, as someone who can pull Teddy Angelinos out of the back of the recesses of my mind, I told this to Sonam Singh once. I was like, I have your third set against Alex Clayton in the 11 quarterfinals from the – I was like, I have it memorized. I could tell you all of like – because I've watched those Virginia men. That's all you had in the late 2000s and early 2010s. Yeah. And, you know, obviously your name came up in a couple of those Florida State matches. Did you guys play them round of 16, I want to say, in like 08, 09-ish, something like that? Sounds so familiar. Can I, can I, uh, I'm going to go one short funny story. Please. So, so, you know, we really thought we had a great team. And Bobby Cameron had actually transferred to Florida State for that year. Oh, is this and the not was, today, not ever match from Shabazz where he yells at the end? Honestly, like I blacked out after we lost. I don't <laughs> okay. remember anything. And I don't mean at a bar. I just, I just blacked yeah, out the yeah. memory. But, um, but yeah, so like Bobby was our, our own athletics wouldn't let him in. They wouldn't admit him on the team. They let him in school, but they wouldn't let him play for the team. So, and we still thought like, okay, we're still good. We played Virginia really close. We thought we could win. And remember, this is junior year. I'm going through a bad place mentally. Um, but I'm trying to get through, and we play them. We lose a Dallas point 2-1. I'm playing Dominic Inglot for the third freaking time that year. <laughs> you know, And I remember Brian Bolin coming up to Inglot, and I remember Brian Bolin says, hey, can you hit your serve harder, please? I'm like, what do you mean harder? He's serving 140. <laughs> and he would literally just go and bomb it. So it was the third time we're playing that year, and I got this idea that, I'm not going to make it with a one-handed backhand return. It's just not good enough. Mm -hmm. So Dominic Inglot was my first match trying to return with a two-handed backhand <laughs> on the first serve return. But I didn't do it right away. I was in such a bad place. I couldn't break him. So down, I was up 5-4 in the first set on serve. And literally, I hit like three backhand first serve returns. Two hands in, break him. Do it again the next game, break him, win 4-4. Four and four. You know, just two-handed backhand returns that I just started hitting like two weeks ago because I'm losing my mind. And, yeah, and we ended up losing 4-2. Uh, uh, I think I do think Shabazz clinched it. Yeah, um, and I think yeah. he yelled a little bit afterwards. I've seen the video. This is why I say it. It was, what, at Baylor maybe in Waco or Tulsa? Texas A&M. Tulsa? Oh, A&M, right, College Station. Um, yeah. yeah, that's that's funny. Um, no, I mean, look, they were a very good team. They didn't lose ACC matches very frequently, if ever, in that era. No. And, yeah, no. I imagine there's nothing worse as a tennis player than playing a guy like Adam Inglot. No disrespect to Adam, obviously, top 20 doubles player in the world. The results speak for themselves. But when you know you're going to have no rhythm in a match where everything's going to be five shots or less, I can imagine how that was frustrating. Well, why do you think I started working with Riley? I'm like, I want to be on his side. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be playing against him. I want to be with him. Yeah, so, you're like, let me tell you yeah, the mentality of going against you. This might help. Yeah, it, it's miserable. It's miserable, and especially when they can become good from the baseline. You know, you have your players like Kevin Anderson that start to add that in and change that dynamic. Is It is the worst feeling in the world. You know, right. to, to walk onto a court and have no – literally, you don't have control anymore. This is good. And that, that's, a, that's a frustrating place to be at. 
Yeah, this is always where I, because again, I think Virginia fandom is where this all started. Do you have a Lee Singer take for me? Um, no, I'm just kidding. I don't need a Lee He was Singer. on the team. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I played him. Would have been too low for you. Yeah, it would have been too low. You were you were taken on. Did you play Tret ever? You must have. Well, yeah, that was so that was my freshman year. We played him at Florida State. We are up 3-0, and I was serving 4-2 as a freshman against Tret Huey, and I just choked my life away. You know, Tret. Really? You know, with his little flicks and stuff, he's so – best hands. Best hands I've ever seen in my life, still to this day. Best hands. Yeah. So. Um, no, that's good. I like that. That's funny. Um, but, yeah, with all of that said, and, yeah, believe me, skinny Tony Bresky and Brian Boland, that's a dynamic duo. Like, I, I'm, there are a lot of stories there that remain untapped. But uh, yeah. with all that said, JY, I appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show today. There's always an open spot for you. And, again, to learn more – Oba on tennis, Obane. Oh, how am I? Am I saying it right? So it's uh, in Spanish. It's you pronounce the e in French. You pronounce you don't pronounce it. So because okay. my family's Argentinian. So ah, so yeah. you know what? I'll just say JY then. I'll go with but a u b o n e tennis dot com to learn more. Uh, JY, appreciate you taking the time, my friend. Thanks, man. Appreciate you having me on. Hope all of you enjoyed another fantastic edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. A massive thank you to JY for taking the time to speak with us. It was a very fun conversation. It was not the direction I expected the podcast to go, and it was even more enjoyable than I anticipated. That's a shout-out to JY for being so candid, for sharing such fantastic stories with all of us here on today's episode. And again, JY, one of many fantastic guests we have had of late here on this show, whether it be former Florida associate head coach Tanner Stump, whether it be all of the All-American champions from Nell Miller and uh, Amelia Rejecki to Fiona Crawley, Ethan Quinn. We've had Brandon Nakashima, Ellen Perez on this show of late as well. A lot of juice to get to if you are a Cracked Rackets listener and the way you can find them, just scroll down on your Cracked Interviews podcast feed. You can find all of them on our website as well, CrackRackets.com. You can find them by following us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at A.L. Gruskin. A shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Shout-out, as well, to our dear friends at Swing Vision. Remember to learn more. Just click on the link in the description to this podcast. Of course, when you do inevitably sign up, make sure... You use our promo code CRACK20. With that said, for the fantastic JY Oban, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Swing Vision, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You've been listening to another edition of the Crack Interviews Podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone.